Hi, I'm Mike Oppenheim, and you are listening to Coffin Talk, Interviews with the Living, a weekly podcast that explores how our views on death affect the way we live our life. This week, our special guest is Kim Hamer. On April 16th of 2009, Kim watched her 44-year-old husband take his last breath. During that illness and after his death, she was amazed by the helpful ways all of their coworkers, bosses, friends, and family supported them. Kim started calling these kind actions acts of love, and that turned into a book. So I'm so excited to talk to Kim today. Kim, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Of course, and it is our pleasure. And uh, we always ask our guests to just kind of give a little background information. So we usually ask how old they are, uh, where they grew up, and what generation, if any, they belong to. <laughs> always like that age thing is always a tricky question for women yeah i know okay so i depending on where the cutoff line is i am actually a boomer i was born in 64 um so i'm like the last year of boomers but i could be the other side i like to consider myself a millennial but as millennials age i kind of want to be a gen zer right so i kind of want to keep <laughs> going down generations um, I grew, I was born in New York City of two parents who were New Yorkers, and I grew up in Westport, Connecticut, which is a suburb of New York City. All of our fathers used to get in the train every day, Monday through Friday, and head into the city to work. Um, and then what was your other question? Where was I born? No, that was it. How old are you? But they can do the math, 64. Yeah, and actually, it's funny. I've been to Westport, Connecticut three times, and I was there. A friend rode horses, and that's where all the horse stuff was. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. That's, that's exactly, that, that sounds about right. That's so exciting. <laughs> when you said it, I was like, oh, I, I totally know Westport. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, I hate to start with like such a, you know, to our audience crass subject, but um, do you want to kind of walk us through the events of leading up to April 16th, 2009, and just everything that happened with your husband? I, I mean, I know it's so rude to start that way, but I'm sure you understand. Hey, everyone. If you're a fan of the show, please head over to MikeyOp.com and click the subscribe button. It's the best way to support us, and it's free. That's M-I-K-E-Y-O-P-P.com. Thanks. You know what? This is a podcast about death, and I am happy to launch into it because I think that we do need to have more honest and open conversations about it. Um, so my husband um, was six foot six tall. He was an athlete. We were sort of an organic. If you think about like, I don't know where your listeners are from, but if you think about like your typical liberal, <laughs> um, liberal couple living in a city, we were organic eating. We were really super healthy, you know, and I'm making fun of myself here. And one day he just, he was, he was, he was just kind of having, he was running these mild fevers and he was getting achy. So we were treating cancer, which we didn't know at the time. We were trying to treat cancer with cough syrup and ibuprofen. Um, clearly that, that wasn't a great plan. Um, a couple day, a couple weeks later, we ended up going to the doctor and it was just like in the movies, you know, the doctor sat us down and laced his fingers and leaned them on the, on the exam table and looked at my husband and said, I think you have cancer and it's bad. And so we went through a series of tests and by Friday, the following week, he had been diagnosed with large B cell lymphoma stage four. And if he, if they hadn't started the chemo when they did, which was on a Sunday, um, the cancer would have killed him within three weeks. So it was a pretty serious, pretty quickly. Um, and he disentangled himself. And I like to say disentangled because the idea that it's a battle just doesn't, doesn't sit well with me. So he disentangled himself from cancer about eight months later with the help of an incredible genius doctor. Um, but unfortunately, two years after that, little less than two years after that, the cancer came back and he died at the age of 44. Um, we had three kids at the time who were 12, 9, and 7. 
And um, one of the things I put in the bio, which you read, is that I got to watch him take his last breath. And that was, I, I honestly to this day consider it his last greatest gift to me because there's something like I, I was terrified to watch. I didn't want to be there, but I wanted to be there. I just wanted to, for me, I needed to make sure that he was truly dead. Um, but also I just needed to feel like I was ushering him out. Like he was just going out with family. Um, so there was two other members of his family who um, stayed with me that night and it was, it was truly an, an honor. Um, we also, the other thing, since we're talking about death, the other thing that I that I did a few days before he died, so he he was hospitalized, he was going back and forth getting treatment, and then one, uh, he called me on a Friday and said, hey, they want to keep me because I have an infection, which is not uncommon when you have cancer and you have an infection, you have the chemo they give you, knocks your white blood cells out, and so getting an infection is really serious business, and um so on Sunday, I got a call from the doctor, from a doctor, and he said, you need to give us permission to draw spinal fluid. And I thought, why? Like, my husband was fine. Um, you know, the day before, he seemed a little confused, but he seemed fine. And they said he's not really coherent. And so that Monday, we learned that, you know, he was not going to be getting better. Um, and so I had to, you know, tell the kids that their father wasn't going to be leaving the hospital alive. And I gave each of my children the opportunity to say goodbye to their father. Um, so, you know, I really wanted to approach, I wanted them to have this real life experience because I didn't, I don't know, I just didn't want them to think death is like one day you're alive and then you're gone and no one sees you ever again. Um, and, and that's true, in, you know, but in our case, it was an opportunity for them to be able to do it. Each of my three kids did it very differently. You can imagine, you know, a 12-year-old versus a 9-year-old versus a 7-year-old. Um, very, you know, very, very different um, reactions. Um, but I'm really grateful that I did. And, you know, to this day, my kids, uh, two of my kids have said that they've been very grateful that that they got to do that. Um, so that's sort of the story. That's sort of where it all started. That was fantastic. Um, I mean, just you hit every point that I would want to ask that would take forever to ask. So it was like very good. Um, <laughs> obviously not good news, but I actually, I mean, I am intrigued the most by your story. And also like one of the most compelling reasons I wanted to interview you was that you like us are into the idea of people being more exposed to death, not because like death is good, but it's obviously going to happen to everyone. And so I'm curious, a lot of our audience has dealt with cancer, I'm sure, because I can't imagine a single person who hasn't been like, you know, two degrees of separation from someone with cancer. Right. Before we get into children and like that side of it, because I am going to come back to that. What is your advice for someone who gets the diagnosis? Like, I know that you didn't get it, your husband did, but, but do you have any advice on that issue? Who? Um, <laughs> I don't know how much time you have. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for, for this question, as much as you want. <laughs> so... I, I, I'm going to say that, like you said, I have not been diagnosed with cancer. And so I cannot speak about this from, from that point of view. I can speak about it from the point of view of, of a person who has kind of watched this journey. And, you know, when my husband was diagnosed the second time, neither of us had the courage to have that conversation of like, hey, this might not work out so well. Um, one thing that I did do, um, I saw how much he was struggling. At some point he needed, you know, my husband, this athletic man, 
he on a on a you know was weighing 235 when he started the treatment you know he was solid he was a solid six foot six he wasn't a, a rail thin six foot six and one day I was watching him trying to get down two steps into our our kind of family room and you know he had a walker and he was really struggling and I I had probably the hardest conversation with him and I said hey look like I, I I'm gonna say it really kind of flat out but trust me it was not this beautiful and well said at the time I said look I I see how hard you are struggling to live and it's okay to go there was a lot of there was a lot of crying a lot of snot you know then you know in the movies where they make it really pretty when people cry like that stuff doesn't happen and so you know this looks like like at one point we're we're crying and I pull my head away and there's like snot on his upper lip from my crying and just there's this bridge of snot between us I mean it was it was funny and sad and horrible at the same time then three weeks later he died so um, from from my point of view, I think what happens is the person with cancer wants to fight it and really kind of like wants to live and wants to keep going because sometimes they're worried of what will happen to the people they leave behind. Um, and so I think my advice would be to be as open and honest as you possibly can in the moment. You know, it, it is not easy and it is not, you know, cancer is a it feels like a death diagnosis and sometimes sometimes it can be like death diagnosis like if you don't take care of this right now or it can be death diagnosis if you don't take care of it it'll be it'll get you in four years um so i i don't i don't really i mean from my point of view i think i gave him the sense that it was okay because i think he kept thinking he was fighting he was you know he was doing this to be alive he was doing this for the kids because we all needed him and we definitely needed him and we definitely miss him but i wanted to let him know that we'd be okay without him and um so I don't think that's really good advice for somebody with cancer. I think it's really more for the caregiver. Yeah, I was kind of, I was asking the question about the person getting it, but as you started to explain it, it actually made more sense to ask both questions. So, and, and you did a great job. I, uh, I think the reason I asked is that like, you met my wife, she's our producer and you spoke to her before. I, like if I had a diagnosis and I came home and told her, like the look on her face of sheer terror and like um, pessimism would be, like harder for me to deal with than just like hiding it from her. And so I was kind of thinking from like that kind of weird psychology perspective. Yes. And and I think that's exactly what happened. You know, my husband was like, he's like, for, you know, he's got that attitude of I'm going to, I'm going to get past this. I'm going to get past this. And also, you know, it's hard to, I'm sure it was hard for him to come to terms with, you know, leaving little kids, you know, and, and that type of thing. But yeah, he was, you know, we had an unsaid rule when he was first diagnosed and it was that his job is to do anything he can to live. And my job was to hold everything else down. And we didn't talk about this till after the cancer the first time. And it was then that we sort of said, okay, we're not going to do that again because it's because we weren't really being honest with each other about how terrified we were. And I didn't want to tell him how terrified I was because I didn't want to scare him. And he didn't want to tell me how terrified he was because he didn't want to scare me. And, you know, it was that preservation, but it would have been much easier for us to talk about that the first time had we had the courage to do it. Having cancer takes a lot of courage. I mean, it really does. And it's it's not the like, it's not the like, oh, I'm, you're, you're so courageous that you beat cancer. That's not the courage part. The courage part is, is sitting in the crap of, oh my gosh, I, mu I might die. And I have to have these hard conversations that I so do not want to have. That's the courage part. Totally. Um, somewhat recently, I don't know when this is going to come out, but um, the f somewhat famous comedian Norm Macdonald passed away and he had cancer and he had 
hidden it from everyone except maybe an agent and his wife and son. And uh, when the story came out, you know, it was very... I just heard like a lot of people, like like friends of mine being like, that's so mean, how could he do that? You know, and to me it all just ties in. It's like, well, I can see that he wanted privacy and also maybe he was going to beat it, you know. And he actually, just like you, uh, he didn't call it disentangling, but he didn't like the term battle. And I thought that was very interesting. So I love that you call it disentangling. And uh, on that note, there's a million reasons you're qualified to be a writer and there's a million reasons to, to write the book. But the reason I really wanted to interview you is that I'm tired of like, not positive things, <laughs> you know, because I think there's always a positive way to look at everything. Right. So I was I was attracted to the title of your book, A Hundred Acts of Love. And like the fact that you took something, my words, not yours, but it's a true tragedy. You lost your husband, period. I mean, that's it. And uh, but you did something good for other people. So can you kind of talk about that process? Like how hard was it to like bring it back up? Well, I think there's a myth that it's ever gone. I think that's the funny thing, you know, and and I think, you know, we kind of we, we kind of have this year mark, like after the year, everything goes back to normal and you start your life over again. And it's so not true. And so, you know, if you have a friend who's been widowed or a widower or someone who's lost somebody like feel free to talk about the person that they lost five, six, seven, eight, nine years later. Um, because, because it's, it's so freeing. Um, and because it reminds everyone that they're not alone. Like loss is really personal when it's really close and it can feel like no one else is going through the same thing. Um, and then when someone shares a story, like uh, someone shared a story, like probably seven years ago about my husband and it was hysterical and it was so him. And I cried because it was so him and I was so happy to have that story. So, um, so for anyone's listening, please talk about the person who died. Um, so the, the process was this, I was so touched by how many things people did for us. And I was afraid that I was going to forget. And that when, so when someone else died or someone else had a hard time, I wouldn't remember what to do or what to say. And the reality is, is that until my husband had cancer and after he died, I was the person who said the wrong thing all the time without knowing it. I wanted the book to do two things. I wanted the book to teach people, you know, several things not to say. Just don't say them. Just get them out of your out of your lexicon. These words come out. And we'll talk about the number one phrase in just a second. But the other, but the other thing is, I really wanted people to know how easy it is to help because a lot of times when someone says, you know, I have cancer or my husband died or whatever, we absolutely we act crazy. We are like, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do. I don't know. And then we get to we go through this process of I don't know what to do. Let me say this one statement. Okay, this person hasn't called me back, so maybe they don't need my help. And then if we're in a community, we, we see other people sort of helping and we think, well, well, gosh, they seem to know what to do. Am I a bad person? Because I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. Well, it seems like they're getting enough help because she hasn't called me. And then we talk ourselves out of helping. And that, that does two things. One, it, it keeps you from connecting to the person who really needs your help when they really need it. And two, it makes us feel like we're not like we like we don't matter. And both of those are not true. And so I wrote it to Pete so people could understand it's the simple little things. You don't have to deliver meals for four months every every single day for the next four months. I wrote it because sending a gas card is a great gift. It's just a great way to say, I'm thinking about you. I hope this gas card helps if, if you live far away. Or taking their car and filling it with gas is such a simple little thing that you can do. You know, if you work with somebody and they're struggling, you know, they have a, they're, they're, they're coming back to work after a loss, bringing them a cup of coffee 
It's like, I bought you this cup of coffee. I bought you a ton of sugar and a ton of cream because I don't know how you like it, but I'm thinking about you and I just want you to start your day off in a good place, right? It's really simple to show up and that's what I wanted people to know. And so the book is really filled with all these really simple ways to just show up for somebody in crisis. That's, I mean, that's just so well said. I, I love it. And I love every part of your mission. And I definitely want to still hear like the biggest no-nos. So here's the thing. And, and, and for everyone in the audience who said this, just take the stick, hit yourself over the back with it once and then throw the stick away. And here's the phrase. <laughs> the phrase is, if you need anything, let me know. Oh God. And it sounds so helpful. It sounds so helpful. And when you say it, you really do mean anything, but the reality is you don't mean anything. And there are three reasons that this is not a good phrase. One, what is anything? Really? Like, like Mike, I don't know you that well, and I know you have a wife. So, so I could probably figure out like, like maybe, you know, if your wife is sick, maybe you need, maybe you need someone to, I'm gonna be totally stereotypical here. Maybe you need a meal. So I'm going to offer you, I'm going to say, I can bring you chicken or lasagna. What do you want? Right. But anything is too big. And, and I had toddlers. Like, did you mean that you were going to, the first time my husband was sick, I had a toddler. Let me specify. Did you mean that you were going to go pick up my snot nose, sneezing, coughing, sick toddler from preschool? Or did you mean that you were willing to run out and get me a gallon of milk? Like, you know, what exactly is anything? So it's too big. That's the first reason. The second reason it's not helpful is you have now put the pressure on the person who's in crisis to figure out what they need. And if I ask you to break down your day, like, you know, sometimes people say, hey, do you need help with anything? And you go, uh, no, I'm good. Like, because you're asking the person to break down every aspect of their day. So for me, my aspect of my day involves getting up, getting the kids up, getting breakfast, getting my husband to the cancer treatment center, um, you know, answering emails, talking to doctors, um, making sure um, lunches were packed, dinner was in, um, we, that we had something to eat in the house, um, coordinating visits, um, you know, just in, in the car care, lawn care, laundry, hair, you know, it involved so much. And so you're asking me to break down my day. And then the third reason it's not helpful is then you're asking this person who's already in an extremely vulnerable state. Let's just say that they do figure out one thing that they need. You're asking them to ask you to do something that you may not even want to do that you maybe didn't mean when you said anything. And so they're, they're very vulnerable and the person might go, oh gosh, um, okay, can I do it for you tomorrow? Like, you know, and you can't risk that kind of rejection. It just hurts way too much. So that's why it's not a good phrase. And what to say instead is be really specific. Take it upon yourself to look at your own day and to figure out one way that you can help. Um, and something I have people do an exercise I have people do in my workshops is let's walk through your first day, your normal day. So you get out of, so you wake up, what's the first thing you do? Some people say they look at their cell phone. Is the cell phone bill paid? Is there enough money in the bank to pay the cell phone bill? That's a place where you can help. You go to the bathroom. Is there toilet paper in the house? Like, you know, like sometimes every, what you need to consider is the things that we do in a normal day 
are really hard when you have a crisis going on. So remembering to put toilet paper on the shopping list and going to the store to get toilet paper is a chore. So, you know, if you walk through your day, is there soap to, to wash your hands after you use the bathroom, right? Is there a clean towel in the bathroom? Do you have clean underwear? Is there breakfast food? Everyone's so big on bringing dinner. Is there breakfast food in the refrigerator? It's interesting because one time I was hit by a car and I was in a wheelchair for a while and I had people helping me and it, it, I'm feeling like some parallels in hearing it, but I've never thought about like just how much I do say that phrase a lot. I say it all the time in other circumstances too. And so I'm starting to think about, yeah, like providing like the actual thing is so important. Yeah. And I think it's, uh, you know, it's funny because I said like, I'm so happy about positive books. I think this is positive and I think it's very important to tell people like, hey, your intention, like you said, is great, but the you know effect is falling flat on its face. So thank you, that's very insightful. And it's hard. So here's the thing that you have to do as the person who wants to support, you have to take a risk. You have to have some courage that what you offer may not be useful to them at the time. You know, you have to come back and maybe offer something different. I always say, pick something specific and offer more than once. Because even though that person may look like they're dealing with a full deck of cards, they're in crisis. They're dealing with 27, maybe, maybe, maybe 48 cards, you know, but it's like they, they're not all there and they're not going to remember that you offered. So offer more than once. And that takes courage. That takes courage and belief in that what you have to offer really matters and that you can be effective. And I think that's where people often fall short. They're afraid. And so in their fear, they don't, they don't make those steps. And I'm just, I just so want to encourage people to get past the fear, you know, just kind of walk through it and get to the other side because it's really powerful. Yeah. I think that fear is like such an important part of why we do this podcast, trying to get people to eliminate the fear of death and the fear of like talking about it and being open with people about it, uh, whether it's your own or someone else's and all that. So yeah, um, on that note, uh, this podcast does ask one other standard question. What do you think happens when you die? I don't have an answer. I am lately leaning towards you just die. And I don't, I'm not, I'm not leaning towards heaven or you get recirculated or you come back, you know, you get, you know, you come back in a different life form or you come back as a different person. That's not where I am right now. Um, I'm at the, I'm at the place where you know, you die and what gets carried on is your memory, your habits, the things you love, the people you love, like that, that stuff gets carried on in your heart, in, in, in everyone else's heart. Um, so yeah, that, that's where I'm at. And it's, and it's interesting because, you know, it's, it's not a very popular view and also, <laughs> and also it, um, I like it because it, 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 it for me it makes me want to do more with my life because I feel like this is it like this is all I'm getting you know so how many hearts and it sounds really cliche and I'm so sorry like how many people can I touch how many people can I make happy how many people can I make feel good to me that's the value I mean, if it's cliche to be like a great, great human and make everyone's experience better, count me in that pack. Um, I, I totally understand. <laughs> and I do. I think that people associate people who don't think anything happens when you die with being like cold and distant and not a fan of life. And I think you're 100% proving the opposite of that, which is also part of the point of asking people that question is that I don't hold judgment anymore about it. I actually used to before I started this experiment. And uh, it's it's totally changed my mind because... Um, there's no corollary. It's just good people are good people. But I like that you 
feel motivated by that to like really make all this time good. And I am curious, like, um, we, we asked, I asked you about, um, like, I didn't, I don't think I phrased it moving on, but I'm, I'm sure that's how it came across. How, how do you deal with like getting back to your life? Mm. Like, I know there's no end to grieving him and that he's always gone and it's okay to keep reminding you of that and talking to you and celebrating his life. But like, what is your suggestion for someone to like, not feel guilty as they quote unquote move on? And I'm not calling it moving on, but I'm, you know. I, I totally get you. That's a good question. I think there is, so for me being a woman, there's, so, and I think it also really comes from men, but it's less expected. I'm supposed to mourn my husband for the rest of my life. Like if I die at 90 and people go, oh, she never remarried because she lost the love of her life. So I think it's, look, I, I loved my husband. He was a good man. And I think it's hard to, so I'm talking from my husband's point of view. My sister-in-law may say something totally different because she can't get another brother. I can get another husband and it won't be the same, but she can't get another brother. Right. So for me, it's, you know, my husband was a great man. He did great things. And I'm really excited that I had the opportunity to be married to him. And I feel like he taught me in, in retrospect, it's all happened after we died. I feel like I learned how to be married and I learned what not to do. Cause there's a lot of that reflection of the guilt for me. There's a lot of reflection of the guilt of the way I was in my marriage. And, um, and then I also learned a lot of what I can do. So the next person I date is actually probably going to really luck out because I'm going to be living, living in amends to the things I didn't do well in my first marriage. Um, so I don't think that there is a way, I don't think there is a time. I really, I didn't like it when people are like, you should probably get rid of this clothes now, or you should do this. Or, you know, there was, there are a lot of people out there who will tell you what you should do based on base. And I will tell you this, most of them, anyone who has dealt with loss has never told me what I should do. It's the people who have not dealt with loss who are like, you should start dating. You should start moving on. You know, the kids need a father. You should get rid of his clothes. You should take down his photos. You know, it's, it's, those are the ones who had the opinion about what I should do. Um, loss is, loss is forever morphing. I can talk to you about my husband all day long and not cry at all. And in fact, I kind of get tired of talking about him sometimes. And then, and then I could be walking down the street. Um, actually, this happened to me the other day. My husband and I used to have different views when sirens went by. So an ambulance would go by. And and one day, I don't remember how we, how we got talking on the topic. And I was like, God, that makes me feel so sad somebody's hurt. And he said, it makes me feel so good because they're going to get, they're going to help. And so that just sort of stuck in my head. And when he died, every time I heard a siren, I started to think about that. I would think, you know, go get him, guys. That's what he would say. Like, go get him. And so one day, literally a couple of weeks ago, my husband has been dead for 13 years. I hear a siren go by. I say, go get him. And I burst out crying. I have, I have said, go get him lots of times to them. I have, you know, I pull over and, you know, I, I do all the right things. I send them on their way with some good vibes a million times. And it's never made me cry. And this one time it made me cry. And I think that's what people don't understand about loss and about talking about death. You can talk to me. You can ask me about my husband. and I'll tell you factual about what happened and how it felt and everything else. And I'll be fine. And six months later, someone might ask me and I might sob. 
it's completely unpredictable. And I think it's about embracing the unpredictability of it. Um, that's really important because it's, it's, you know, the first year or two are hell. I mean, bottom line, they're hell. Um, but then you start to kind of, you know, your life gets really gets delineated between before and after. And, you know, you move on. Um, you know, I think about my kids now, we might, you know, my, my husband, if he were alive or, or if he came back to life, might pass the kids on the street and not recognize his own children, you know, and that makes me sad. Um, but there's so much there, our lives have not involved him for so long that the, the missing part, the deep, deep grieving doesn't occur often. Yeah. Wow. Kim, I am just, uh... First of all, I'm so glad you do what you do, and I'm glad you also do like leadership and counseling and, and human uh, HR um, because you have a gift and and you gave our gift to our audience today. Um, I am, I mean, I'm just like very overwhelmed with good positive emotions about like one of the scariest and most. Like I said, it's uh, you know, there's so many social issues to talk about in 2022, but the one that has persisted for like over a century that's just seems to never go away is is cancer, and it has no like racial or sexual or any bias, you know, it, it strikes everyone. So, um, so thank you for coming on the show. Is there anything you want to add before we go? I want to tell everyone if they want to download five phrases never to say to anyone with cancer or anyone dealing with death or loss, I want to invite you to go to 100actsoflove.com and that's the number 100. And you're going to go to 100actsoflove.com backslash what not to say so all one word no capitals nothing what not to say and i offer this free download of five things not to say i talk to people about why not to say them and what to say instead and i am happy to talk about death anytime you want mike i really appreciate i really appreciate what you're doing and um yeah it's we need to talk about it we really need to talk about it because you're right my husband had a very wise sense of humor he died on april 16th and i know he was pissed that he didn't die on April 15th because it's death and taxes, two things you know you can depend on. And that, that's the kind of guy he was. Well, thank you so much. And of course, in the notes of this podcast will be the web link. Please don't hesitate to go there. Uh, how could you turn down free advice about something that, like I said, it's probably going to affect you at some point in your life, like it or not, a close friend, a coworker, a colleague, um, you know, God forbid someone you're extra close to, but it strikes us all. And some of us survive and some of us don't, but Kim's book has advice for all of that. And uh, again, thank you, Kim, so much for coming on our podcast and helping us put another nail in the coffin <laughs> to our audience. If you have time, head over to MikeyOp.com and hit the subscribe button and you can get more news about future podcasts and bonus materials. Um, and if not, just keep coming back and listening. We love you and we love the uh, support of everyone who listens. So thank you again, Kim Hamer, and thank you to our audience. This has been another episode of Coffin Talk. My name is Mike Oppenheim, and we will see you soon. Walking alone Walking alone